This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on RRR 102.7 FM. Oh, welcome to the podcast or the radio on demand playback service if you're catching up with us that way. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm here by myself once again, although it won't be like that for the entire show this week. Uh, I do have to say that uh, Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard, two of the show's regular co-hosts, are going to be away for the next uh, two or three weeks. So they won't be joining me later, but Alexandra Heller Nicholas will be. Uh, Alex and I are going to be discussing two films currently playing in Australian cinemas. We'll first take a look at the Hungarian Holocaust drama Son of Saul, which recently won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. We'll also be discussing Spear, a dance film by the Bangara Dance Company, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander performing arts company. But first, we're going to do this. In the 1990s, Time magazine called her the Queen of the Indies, and more recently, the New, the New Yorker named her the greatest character actress of the last few decades. Parker Posey's diverse and varied acting career has spanned over two decades now, not only in independent cinema, but also in Hollywood blockbusters and television. She has frequently worked with Hal Hartley and also with Christopher Guest in films such as Best in Show, where she has had to improvise all her dialogue. She is the subject of a film program at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, which is screening a selection of the key films from her career, including two of her most recent films, Woody Allen's Irrational Man and Hal Hartley's Ned Rifle. I spoke to Parker yesterday on the phone, and I began by asking her what it's like being the subject of a film retrospective program. It's it's um it's uh, it's nice um yeah reminds me of um my uh, trajectory and my my uh, my whole path which is pretty unusual and great and uh, it was nice to uh, you know to, to look back um, and 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 realize uh, you know I was I was part of something. Yeah. That's for sure. Uh, one of the films they're showing in the program is Richard Linklater's Days and Confused. You began acting in the early yeah. 90s, and in 93, that was yeah. one of many films of yours that came out. Would you regard that as one of your big breaks into working professionally as an actor? Um, maybe. Um, <laughs> you know, I just saw his new movie, It's So Good. Um, the uh, spiritual... Uh, Companion today's is what he's calling it. Yeah, I can't wait to and see it. It's so good. It's so. Uh, it's got so much energy. It's uh, it's so detailed and authentic, and it's just a cast of these great guys who who are just giving their all in these unique performances, and uh, it's just charming and and and. You know that kind of uh, that kind of energy from you know your first movie and that first experience. So uh, for many days, is, has that has that excitement as well, and um, that that kind of energy. Um, you know, it didn't it didn't do that well when it came out. So um, it became a cult film. You know, like a lot of um, like the Christopher Guest movies too. Like 
uh, waiting like waiting for Guffman didn't do well when it came out either. Um, but they gain popularity is by like word of mouth. Um, so they're kind of small movies, you know, and people become fans of them and they. They want to watch them over and over again, like days of computers. Throughout the 90s, you appeared in films by some of the biggest names in the American indie scene, as well as Linklater. You were in Noah Baumbach's first film, which is screening in the Acme program. You were acted with directors like Greg Araki, and you were famously described as the queen of the indies by Time magazine. What did you make of that label at the time? And looking back, was it helpful or a hindrance? I think what you called out, you know, for something, and you become emblematic of something, you're kind of uh, set apart, you know. Uh, I feel that it it also came at a time, like, once in the American culture, uh, once something is uh, becomes even more of a commodity, then, you know, the business people came in, and independent film became more, um, you know, the, the way of working wasn't, you know, from the director, it became about uh, financing. And so, um, I mean, I'm very lucky I could have uh, been able to sustain a career um, with this kind of, um, the way that movies are made now. Um, so that's good. And to continue to work with um, the directors that I worked for in the beginning, I, I question that, uh, whether it's a hindrance. Um I I don't I really can't look at it that way. I could say the experience of it. Um, it wasn't like I was called called that, and then all these independent scripts came my way. Um, it, it was kind of the opposite. Um, I got more mainstream kind of you know character parts in big films, and it's just a few independent films. So um, I just think that's part of how the system works, really. Um, I mean, I have some new media meetings I've been taking, which I'm excited about. And I'm really into, you know, what this next form in, you know, the screen will be with everyone, you know, with their cell phones and um, their social media, like what, you know, what could I make uh, to fit into this new landscape? So I'm um, I'm changing, you know, with the times, and uh, I'm looking, looking forward to it. Fantastic. Something you just touched upon there is that the 90s really was, especially the early 90s, a great period for American cinema, and in many ways I think it was the last really great period for, for an independent spirit, similar almost to what we saw in the late 60s and the early 70s. I think there was a vibrant independence oh, yeah. scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hollywood was more daring. Would you agree with that? And was there a real sense of excitement at the time that you were all part of something quite fresh and innovative? Um, yeah, um, totally. There were, you know, there was still an underground in the in the 80s and the 90s, right? Yeah, so exactly. If you were if you were in the music, you could be tuned in to what was cool. And what was being done in the fringe, and now the the, the, the fringe is just there's so much, um, you know, it's oversaturated, and there are a bunch of good films that get made that uh, won't see the light of day because there's just so many of them, and there's not enough uh, uh, money to advertise them and to, and to get them to be seen. Uh, I hope that will change. You know, I hope with 
with some new models um, like Netflix or Amazon or whoever, someone can start to curate these this work that um, filmmakers are making that that no one no one gets to see. I I thought I remember talking to my representatives like, why can't I like like in, introduce like independent films and some like website you know like like Turner Classic Movies or you know <laughs> that'd be great. Um, and so that we, you know, we keep this, uh, we keep this, uh, the culture of cinema alive, um, because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of getting lost now. Um, I mean, it's great that, uh, you know, people still go, but we, we need to, uh, we need to keep it alive because it shows us ourselves, you know, and, uh, we have a dialogue about it and we, we watch the films and we relate to them. And we we see ourselves, and 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 we we share what we think, and and so I I I, uh, I hope that happens. Yeah. Um, you asked me something else. I forgot. Um, I mean, I, I guess just what what, what you were aware of the time in history. Absol- yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, like with Strangers in Paradise, you know the Jim Jarmusch. Oh yeah, love that and, film. Um, yeah, and Done by Law. And, you know, I went to college at Sydney Purchase in 1988. And there were a group of filmmakers like Hal Hartley and Nick Gomez and actors like Stanley Tucci. And, you know, there was this um, this idea that to become an actor, you know, you could, you, could, you could go to school and you could study and you could do regional theater or you could act in in, in in, in independent cinema and do movies that didn't pay you necessarily a lot of money, but you did them for because um, the work was more nuanced and interesting and more collaborative. So that was that was a great time to um, experience that. And uh, you know, I remember running into uh, Ellen Burstyn. And she said, um, I came to King of Marvin Gardens. I think I talked about this in the press in Australia, but who knows if they'll, if they'll use it. But I said, God, oh, that movie was so intimate. It was really, really good. I loved it. I just watched it on, on, on I forget, Netflix maybe. And um, she said, well, you know, we could all, we all hung out for a few weeks. We, we met and we we got to know each other and... We became all became very close, and there was just this way of acting, um, this process of making movies that was so much more intimate. And I, you know, I, I think everything comes around. So hopefully, that'll, um, you know, that that kind of collaboration will, you know, will happen again uh, because it's 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 um it's it's a great thing when it does. It's everything. Well, it's great to see that Hal Hartley's still making films, and he's someone who's very important. Yeah, very important in your filmography. You, you've played the character Faye Grimm in three of his films now. All, the, all three of those films are screening at Acme, including the middle film where you're, when you're the lead. What is, mm-hmm. what is, and that's actually my favourite of the three. What's, your, what's been your relationship with Hartley over the years, and, and how has that changed? Because these three films are all made with several, several years apart. Oh, my God. You know, we just... Um, I just love him, you know. I... I I, he's been such a big fan of his of his talent and how he how he writes, um, how he sees women, how 
um, you know, the uh, his sense of grace and integrity and movement. Camera, his way of working. Um, he's very, you know, he's very humble, and um, he's he's the real deal. He's poetic and and uh, uh, deep and and witty, and I just uh, I love him. So we would um, we just met over the years, you know. For we've been friends now for a really long time, and um, we would, you know. We're still we're still doing it <laughs> in our own way, in our own way, and it's not easy, but it's it's also like it's 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 a great thing. Still, it's a struggle, and you know sometimes the struggle is um, an integral part to to uh, making good work and having your work you know mean something. So I have just an enormous respect for him that he can he can still write and direct and. Um, and produce, you know, paintings and drawings and music and film. And uh, so he's, he's, he's a real inspiration for me. Two of the films that you've had leading roles, two of the other films that you've had leading roles in are Screening at Acme, Broken English by Zoe Castavetes and Personal Velocity by Rebecca Miller. And both of these films, mm-hmm. I felt, really pushed you as an actor and had you playing very rich and complex characters. Have you found that mm-hmm. some of your... Sh- I always want to do work like that. You yep. just got to see work like that. Because um, I kind of am an adjuster to different, you know, modes and of, of, of films. And uh, the, uh, the more human um, parts, the more, uh, the more I like them, um, the, more, uh, the more subtext there is. You know, we're talking about writers who, who are writing in a in a way where, um, you know, it's emotional and there's not a lot on the page. So you you get to bring, um, you know, you you get to bring what's in between, uh, what's in between all the all the words, and just a lot of movies now are uh, in the last twenty years aren't aren't made with that kind of, um, you know, a producer will read that and be like, well, that's kind of kind of bored by that, you know, where. Yeah. Where's the action? Where's the twist? Where's the plot? You know, where's the reveal? And um, instead of trusting that, you know, actors will give a performance that will be uh, surprising and human and, 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 you know, and that people, people are interested in seeing that. You know, it may not sell all over the world, but, um, you know, lots of women come up to me about broken English and, Especially, um, you know, the younger ones, and just go, thank you so much. You, you, you know, that's me that you played. <laughs> so, I'm so, uh, I'm, you know, I'm. I also saw those movies get more and more difficult to get financed. So I really have suffered with that. You know, I think it's um, it's a real shame um, that the culture isn't. Um, talking about this you know it's the culture's responsibility to keep this stuff in style and and potent and they don't it's not talked about it's uh kind of disregarded um anyway it's kind of like depressing but um you're not doing that you're keeping it alive and that's that's great we try to yeah 
do you think that the fact that those kind of films, and these two films in particular, are both written and directed by women, I mean, do you think that is a factor as well as why they, they struggle to, to get seen? Because there is still a struggle for women in Hollywood to get the recognition they deserve? Um, yeah, it's always been a boys' club, you know, and it's it's um, it's very it's very hard to uh, get, you know, um, yeah, it's hard to get a movie financed that has any kind of reality to it, and then, um, but 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 they do, and and that women have is is is, is amazing, but there's there there's so many other um, female directors. Um, you know, I think of Alison McLean right now, who's a beautiful filmmaker, and I am sure she's, you know, uh, I hope I hope she's working, and I and I I hope Ted Hope, who was a you know producer of Howl's movies, is going to um, support, um, you know, the director, the auteur, and um, and and let them cast who they want and tell their stories and and be a real producer in that way. Um, because it's it shifted now to you know star power and and genre, so um, yeah, we'll see how it uh, we'll see how it unfolds. Rebecca Miller has a new movie coming out. I can't wait to see it. Um, you know, she we shot um, each of us had six days to to work on our story, and um, you know these these movies are very easy to to film for me. Um, it's it's uh it doesn't take a lot of um i think the you know the the other um they they just are they're just they're they're it's easier it's easier for me i i see it more clearly what about acting in the christopher guest films because in those your improvisational skills are very much showcased other it's a whole other bag is that hard it looks like it's really hard work but no sorry it doesn't look like it's hard work i just imagine it is it is you know you're you're um you know he's very aware of, of of the culture and so his idea is you get to bring what you think of you know dog owners you know so you you get to have a point of view of the person that you're playing, which is like uh, no one gives you that freedom in other in other movies. And you have an outline, but you kind of you know you meditate on it and you walk around with it and you have these conversations about it and and um, you know you uh, it's it's a really deep uh, kind of process and it's very very sponging, you know. I just you just feel like a big sponge. <laughs> and then you have to throw it all away, um, you know, when the cameras roll and, you know, be there with, with, your, with your actor, who, who, you know, whoever's in the scene with you, and not think and get out of your head and just be in that, be in it. So that is, um, it, it's, it's kind of, you know, scary at first. And then, once um you know once you're in it um you're you're in it so uh yeah but it's it's a it's another kind of stress um but uh you know when when once you start you you're you're okay you jump in you're you're all right remember doing best in show yeah. and the, the scene where I had the pet toy and it was the first scene that I'd had without my husband and I was I was I had forgotten how to how to improvise or to to be in the scene or to work. I'd forgotten how to work, and 
you know, it was all set up. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to come in. I'm going to, um, I just got nervous, you know. And and um, Chris is like, you know, do you remember waiting for Guffman? You're just going to come in. You're going to ask for a toy. And they don't, they're not going to, they don't have it. And, um, and then later I realized that I was in so much trouble from not having this toy that I was already playing the scene. Like my anxiety was actually having from run from the <laughs> dog show competition. <laughs> and I was already, you know, you're already in it. So you don't have any dialogue to hold on to, but you're already set in the, in the atmosphere. And it's, it's really, um, it's a really cool thing. And, and then you, there's no discussion about what you're going to do. Um, Chris will kind of come in and, and in a way, um, in his own way, uh, look at you or say something to kind of bring you into it. And it's just a symbiotic, you know, trusting uh, relationship, um, his process. Um, which it makes all the other more um, uptight, controlling directors um, set that you're on, like, even more difficult to be on um, because you're like, hey, just loosen up. You'll see that, you know, if something's good, it comes from, from trust and not from, you know, control. And I think you see that on, on film. You see things that are tight. And we also see things that are that are loose, and uh, the looser ones just have more more going on, you know, more surprises. Looking back, what have been your personal highlights over your career so far? Uh, just the opportunity to get these movies made, you know, they're um, they're, they're you know they're special in their own way. I th- I'd say that broken English because it took three years to get financing. I'd also say personal velocity because. We did it for no money at all, and it came together in three weeks. And Hal Hartley is like the same thing. Like, you don't even know if these, you know, if they're going to come together. He financed the last one on Kickstarter. It's just, it's like a, um, a real feat. And uh, I have, you know, a real love and respect for the directors that I've, that I've worked with, and it's so nice. It's like a miracle if it, if it if it gets produced and if it's good and it, <laughs> and that's even that's even better. That was Parker Posey discussing her career, experiences in the film industry, and the film program in praise of Parker Posey, which is currently screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Go to acme.net.au forward slash film for details. Uh, just before our call ended yesterday, she actually uh, mentioned to me that she's going to be in the new upcoming Christopher Guest film, which is all about sport mascots. So very much looking forward to that. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Plato's Cave. My name is Thomas Cordwell and Alexandra Helen Nicholas has now joined me for the remainder of the show. Alex, it's good to see you again. Nice to be here. It's been a few weeks, hasn't it, it since has, you've been on? It has. I'm forgetting how to use the headphones, having a little meltdown <laughs> here like a Rubik's Cube. Which ear is the right one? God, it's all, this is live radio, the excitement. 
Well, let's talk about Son of Saul. This is the highly acclaimed debut feature film by Hungarian filmmaker Lazlo Nemesh. It won the Grand Prix Award at the Cannes Film Festival, Best Foreign Language Film at the Academy Awards. It's set during, I believe, a 36-hour period in the Auschwitz concentration camp during World War II. It follows the experiences of Saul Auslander. One of the prisoners, uh, he, he, and he was one of the prisoners who were forced to aid with the disposal of gas chamber victims during the Holocaust. One of the most stroke, striking things about this film is the way it is shot mostly in tight close up on Saul's face. Alex, what did you make of this film? This is, um, oh, I mean, where do we begin on a film like like Son of Saul, this is easily one of my films of the year. I mean, it's only March and I can make that call, but I never never want to see it again. Yeah, I'm going to make that call as Um, well. It's one of my films of the year. I think that, um, I mean, this is just essential viewing. There's no... You get it, I think, as a film critic, and and if you're a a kind of hardened, self-identifying cinephile, you come across a phrase every now and then that people throw at you, which is, you're reading too much into it. You know, that, oh, that yeah, kind yeah. of accusation. And watching this film, I mean, there's so much going on, and I guess in a way this is almost one of the lesser observations to make from the outset, but this is what film can do. This is what film has the power to do. There's all these... It's such a, a, a hornet's nest when we start talking about the representation of the Holocaust, and this is obviously a, quite a field. You know, uh, Adorno has written about this quite controversially. There's a lot of discussion about how do you represent something of of this kind of scale and i think that son of saul uh, nemesh is no fool um he spent a lot of time working on this he co-wrote it with clara royer they spent time at the jerusalem international film lab working on this the way that they incorporate the way that they make this film the way that they put it together is more than just style i think that it's this is political filmmaking at its most powerful and most devastating this like you said it's all these intense quite close-up shots and what really got me is that every it's very short depth of field so everything Mm. in the background's out of focus it's really just Saul's face that we see in focus for the bulk of this film we 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 see vague shapes in the background they're kind of hazy and blurry and we hear noises in the background and we are so familiar with this mythology that we know what they are Mm. and it's such a powerful sensory way of telling us we can't comprehend this you you literally cannot make it out we cannot see it on film it's too big it's too big it's I'm repeating myself because it's so emotional. It's so sensory. There's a real sensory intelligence in this the film. The sound design of this film is extraordinary. Really, I mean, I, I think um, I think a lot of things about this film are extraordinary. Yes. Um, but you're right. The sound was the thing. The, the sound reminds you where you are and what you're doing because there's no really very few kind of broad wide shots on this film. You know, you know, we know where we are mm. at all times. This is so. Im- so entrenched in, in, in our memory, in our cultural memory. Mm. And this film is working on that. And it's this constant, every frame and every little blurry background is a reminder that you can't see what's going on here because you're not there. I think it, Stanley Kubrick is one of many who have talked about the impossibility of filming the Holocaust because how can you capture mm-hmm. all of that, the magnitude of that horror? And, and I think what filmmakers have done over the years is they've tried to depict very specific aspects of it because that's all a single film can possibly yep. bear to do. And, and what this film shows us, the experiences of being inside those chambers where the mass gassings were happening, is something that's never been shown because it's, it's so unthinkable. How could you 
screen that I think even the most repugnant exploitation mm. film wouldn't even mm. go there. It is so horrific. And then the way this film works around that and, and works with that is we get it from his periphery. Yep. So we just see some stuff on the sides of the frame and we hear the sound. And there's a handful of point of view shots in this as well where the camera pulls out to show us exactly what he's seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it, it's so... It's flashes, which is what history is. It's what yeah. historical memory is. We don't, we don't get a full cohesive objective insight into history we just get flashes yeah and that's exactly what we get from Saul's perspective and you've got that that, that, that and it works in two ways one is it it, it avoids showing us the unshowable like mm. it would have been horrific if they tried to film this you know in full frame yep. but at the same time because we're experiencing it through the experience of this lead character it's also quite profoundly Horrific and also really sad. Like, I was aware of two feelings in this mm-hmm. film. One was the horror, or three feelings. One was horror, one was tension, and also a deep, deep sorrow. And I think it's so important that we have that sorrow. We don't just look at this as a horror film. And, you know, yep. the Holocaust was something horrific, but we need to be remembered of the extraordinary grief that it inflicted upon individual people and entire communities. And, and I, th- I think this film captures that in, in a way that it's bizarre. I found it exhilarating as a lover of cinema to watch how brilliantly this film executes that, but as a, as a sh- human being, it, it's devastating. Yeah, no, I feel exactly the same. I mean, it's, it's essential viewing. I mean, if you have any, not even any interest in film, but just in, if you're a human being with a soul, this is essential viewing. I mean, you, yeah. you know, it's such a fundamental um, aspect of the human experience i think that this film captures um and it uses it's not just through narrative it's it's through the way that it's made i love um nemesh worked for bellatar he was an assistant for bellatar and there's a lot of bellatar back shots in this film it's a hungarian filmmaker little things like that are just so they're more than references you know this constant return to that shot of the back of the head um just remarkable filmmaking and nemesh is really aware of the uh, theory, the quite heavy kind of theoretical debates about the representation of the Holocaust. And Adorno is, of course, who we keep going back to with his famous... Uh, it's always taken out of context, but it's, you know, that it's um, to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. You know, this whole question really is the centre of, of Holocaust studies. Um, but you get films like uh, Rendisney's um, Night and Fog from 1955. I've gone back to watch Shoah. The nine um, hour. Yeah, I've um, never watched that. I've seen it's, Night and It's Fog, extraordinary. It's, um, it's the incredible. Claude Landsman mm. uh, nine hour Holocaust documentary where he refused to use any archival footage. It's all interviews and mm. things like that. But even a, a lesser known film is um, Errol Morris's Mr. Death. I don't know oh, if you know I, that. I know which of is a, it, but I've it's never kind, seen it's it. It's a lesser, it's considered a kind of lesser Morris film, but mm. in a funny way, I think it kind of, when I say funny way, I don't mean funny way at all. It fits with these films in that it's dealing with. How do you how do you show the enormity of this? And it's and it's a question I think that that um, you know it's not just for film. I think it's a question that circulates all kind of representation. And I think I mean the film form is what makes this so astonishing. But I think there's also a very strong story which raises some incredibly complex moral. Uh, ideas. I mean, it, it all comes from the lead performance by an actor named Giza. Rorig? Geza Rorig. Yeah, Geza he's an extraordinary human being, um, aside yeah. from an extraordinary actor. Well, I mean, the first note I put in my notebook when I was watching this film is this is the face of a survivor. This mm-hmm. is a man who's decided, I'm going to survive this, and to survive this, I have to cut off emotion. And he's this blank slate face, but the more you look at it, the more you realise there is somebody screaming in anger and sorrow underneath. But he somehow holds that together in this incredible performance. And as the film unfolds, 
un- unfold, we realise just how incredibly profoundly he has held it together during its scenes. I mean, s- some of the most chilling moments in this film kind of creep up on you in hindsight when you realise the impact of what's happened earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's an amazing performance. And, and as, as the film goes on, you start to question his actions. Like, at first I was thinking, is this a film about someone trying to commit an act of humanity under, you know, enormous inhumanity. And as the film goes on, you start to question what he's doing and thinking... This, this is ambiguity this, that runs through it is this so, ruthless and so selfish potent. now? Yeah. yeah. Or, or is it just mental illness? Like, is yeah. this just trauma? Yeah. Um, and it's it's that thing where it's present but also absent. There's this strange tug of war. There's so many ellipses in this film about gaps and things that are missing and things that are present. And, yeah. and we can't we can't put those pieces together. And that's what the film keeps telling us. And, and I think together, uh, both Nemesh and, and um, Rory have done a lot of press. Obviously, this film's won a lot of awards. And they, they talk about these precise issues in just an extraordinary kind of manner. They're very, very concise. Um, Rerig is, I mean, he, it's, you know, I mean, he really carries the film. His performance is so central, is, is an understatement. But his, his background, he was raised Jewish in foster care and, uh, he converted to, he became a Hasidic Jew after visiting Auschwitz. Um, he's a poet as well. Hmm. He's just this remarkable man and he, I think he just brings his life his, his, his own extraordinary life, I think, really just is sort of funneled into this this performance that we probably won't see the likes of again. I mean, there's nothing like this film. It sounds like hyperbole. Yeah, um, no, but you, you but and I've I... I've never are, seen anything like it. I've just never you, seen anything like it. You and it. I are hardened cinephiles and mm-hmm. we were both... We saw this separately to each other and we were both quite moved and shaken yeah. by this film. We're talking about Son of Saul here on Plato's Cave. I know it doesn't sound like the kind of film you want to hey, go everyone, and see. Hey, everyone, run out and see this Holocaust <laughs> film. Like like we said at the start, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's one of my films of the year and I never want to see it again. Yeah, I, look, I'm going to second that, absolutely. <laughs> Three, triple, ah. Oh. Spear was financed by the Hive Initiative. This is an Adelaide Film Festival initiative that funds projects that bring together different art forms. Directed by Stephen Page, artistic director of Bangara Dance Theatre and based on a theatrical dance piece from 2000, Spear is a non-narrative film that uses cinema and dance to convey the experiences of a young man attempting to understand what it means to be an Indigenous man in contemporary Australia. Alex, I came to this film with next to zero understanding of dance with a little bit of trepidation how about you i i come from it with um with a, a an abnormal interest in in dance especially screen dance um one word which is a thing um this is my other life i i, I think about dance a lot um this is a really interesting film to think about in terms of screen dance history i guess i mean screen dance goes it's got a very very long history it goes back to the lumieres and thomas edison the idea of of staging a dance performance for the camera specifically for the camera and i think when we think of this the most obvious stuff we think of is busby berkeley um somebody like gene kelly fred astaire you know they they were like the classics of screen dance well i like with those guys yeah 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 yeah, like that's that's you know that's where this history goes back you have a more kind of experiment experimental avant-garde stuff happening with people like maya Darren, who was a uh, she was a Renaissance woman. She was a filmmaker and a writer and a choreographer, and she did a lot of screen dance work. Um, and Merce Cunningham, um, of course, did a lot of uh, screen dance work. Um, this is the same but different. I guess most recently, the, the big the big screen dance sort of um, 
masterpieces of course the peanut bausch film by vim vendors which i saw and loved yeah but so i'm not as much as a novice as i thought maybe no it's, it's that thing that it sounds like it's something different but when you think it through it's like actually these are all a little bit familiar the yeah. vendors one is interesting because screen dance has an interesting kind of complicated relationship to documentary film um in that people within the screen dance community and it very much is a community it's you know there are there are conferences and there are festivals around screen dance they don't consider this documentary film at all because they 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 consider screen dance um it is the staging of a performance for a camera and when you think about that that's what you know that's what that's what fictional film is that's what fictional feature films are as well so it's it's a very kind of broad definition um this gets really interesting when we start thinking about spear because stephen page who's a, a remarkable um just a remarkable figure in australian cultural history um across the board i think what he's doing with bangara is it's an understatement it is pretty exceptional Hmm. but he's come out he said look this is much much more than this this is not just staging dance for film and that's when this film i think for me starts getting really super interesting in that we we start dealing with very um culturally specific um indigenous ideas about not just storytelling um through the body but also ways of listening um, and I'm paraphrasing a woman called Rachel Swain, who's an Australian uh, dance practitioner and academic and writer. This idea of of dance being a way of communicating and having things communicated to you—that's very, very, very specific to this cultural context. Um, well, I've got to say, it worked because there's, there's somebody. It works bloody well. <laughs> it, I, I I think within the first five minutes of this film, I lost count of the number of times a shiver went down my yep. spine. I found this an overwhelmingly rich and satisfying experience. I, I didn't fully understand all the meaning of what was mm-hmm. happening in the film and I didn't care one bit. I, didn't I felt a it. release from that. I actually yeah, felt very... Yeah, it was quite liberating, kind of, wasn't it? It was quite yeah. radical to not have because to... Because it's not my story and yeah. I understand and respect that. Um, I just thought this was such an astonishing work that just captures that sense of bodies in motion in a way to convey a kind of emotional understanding of a whole culture that I'm aware of, but, you know, to my shame, don't have... From the outside. From the outside. Yeah, no. What I really, what this film does for me, and I think what makes it such, and again, I'm hesitant to talk about screen dance because Paige has been so explicit about it being something quite different, and I understand where he's coming from, so I certainly want to respect that. But in terms of the pure filmmaking going on in this movie, there's a lot of, um, there's a woman called Laura U. Marks who coined the phrase um, haptic visuality, which sounds really fancy, but it's a way of talking about how film, how you can experience different kind of sensory experiences um through through your eyes so in this film there's a lot of use of powder and sand um where we see powder being thrown around in slow motion and sand falling in slow motion and you feel it you can feel the chalkiness of the powder like you can you can you have that sensory it's like the film is touching you like i these were the more even more than the dance these sort of physical sensations were so rich in this film and just so extraordinary that it wasn't just watching bodies dancing and telling the story um of this young protagonist and his his moving between these two kind of cultures but really like moving between the kind of traditional culture and then moving into the city and the tensions that come with that but just this physical stuff yeah um it, it's i think it's really difficult and i think it um for for a debut feature which it is for page um it's an astonishing debut feature. Yeah. I mean, as well as I mean, the the, the dancing is is, is breathtaking, mm-hmm. and the, the the music is so gripping. But this is just beautifully shot. Like yep. the, the lighting is perfect, and the editing knows when to let 
us just watch those bodies in motion yep. and also knows when to move with the beat. And, you know, it, it's effective every single time. Bonnie Elliott is the uh, DOP of this film um, who did these final hours and there's total knowledge. He also did the... Um, uh, Page did a short segment in The Turning called Sand, yep. which was the uh, Tim Winton anthology, I think, from 2013. Yeah. So obviously they work well together. There's a real kind of intuitive knowledge between how film works and how body work, bodies work together in, in Sphere that really... And, and I think, um, I mean, we talked about um, the, the soundtrack already, um, David Page's soundtrack, of course, the brother of Stephen Page, the director... The central protagonist is um, Dajali is Hunter Page Lockhart, who's Stephen Page's son, um, who's got form. Like he really knows how to work a camera. Like he, this isn't his, you know, it's not his. He was in Brand New Day and The Sapphires and a whole bunch of other stuff. He knows how to work a camera. Yeah, I oh, mean, it's a remarkable know. ensemble of talent. Yep. And I mean, I think, and I've, actually, I've heard Stephen Page as well, sort of want to not take too much of the credit. I think mm. he's an insanely humble man, among other things. But he, he does talk about how this is something the troupe together devised and created. Like it is the spirit of their community that put together this film. I also want to give a shout out to producer John Harvey. Yeah, that's a big deal. He's somebody I, I kind of know professionally. Um, you know, I, my day job involves working with short films and I've met John through through that job, a number of short films that he has produced, the films I've, um, uh, you know, been responsible for, for, for showing at festivals. And he's, um, you know, he's, he's based in Melbourne and it's he, he produces amazing Indigenous content. Um <laughs> And I believe this is the very first feature film ever produced by an Indigenous person. I was just going to say the same thing. I read that. that must, I think that was in the press kit. That's in the press um, release, yeah. Yeah, Torres Strait Islander. Yep. It's the first feature film. I mean, that's remarkable. Like, I mean, this is worth a film worth seeing for a whole bunch of reasons. It's, and I know that yeah. we, don't, we don't really do those kind of recommendations. I don't think that we're a recommendation show. Um, but this one, I'm actually going to just just say it, just just bloody say it. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, the fact that it, There's a it's, whole bunch of reasons. It's such an important Indigenous film for what you see on screen and the behind-the-scenes making of it is a really important thing that we should be supporting. But all that aside, it's an exhilarating experience. And what I really, one of the things that Paige has talked about a lot, and I, I kind of sense this, you, you really feel it in the film watching it before you even have him on the record saying this, is it's a, it's a film about a young man. Mm. And it's a film about negotiating masculinity. But this film is so entrenched with this kind of, I think he calls it like a kind of feminine spirit who, who manifests quite literally at points. I mean, it's very much governed by this sort of female spirituality. It's an amazing film. It's beautiful ex- film. Look, Tragic film. Yeah, Incredible yeah. Film. it takes you through a lot of emotion. Yeah. And a shout out also to Aaron Peterson, who has a non-dancing role in it, and he's just stunning. Um, you know, we, we said Son of Saul will both be, to, for both of us, one of the favourite films this year. I think Spear is going to be right up there as one of my favourite films this year as well. I can't see anything challenging it for doing what it does. No, I've, I, I can't recall ever really seeing anything quite like it. Mm-hmm. There you go, on Plato's Cave tonight, I got to speak to Parker Posey <laughs> in two of my favourite films of the year. It's, it's going to be good garbage for, me. for the next couple of shows. <laughs> We're just going to be, oh, this is... <laughs> oh, I'm sure the superhero films will hold up to these. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We better wrap this up, Alex. Uh, the In Praise of Parker Posey program is currently on at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Go to acme.net.au forward slash film for details. Son of Saul is on limited release through Sony Pictures. Spear is screening exclusively at Cinema Nova through Cinema Plus. Uh, you've been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Alex, you and I will be both back in next week. Hell yeah. 
Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.